Our first movie tells the story of a friendship behind prison walls that spans more than 20 years. So welcome to episode 31 of Middle Brown Madness, an exercise in podcast hubris. My name is Derek Gade. Derek, do you think that black cats are a source of bad luck or prosperity? Uh, uh, prosperity? Uh, I, uh, my, 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 my late cat Celeste would be uh, a proof positive of that. So you're saying that when you see a black cat uh, down the street, you don't run away from it in fear? Nah, if anything, I go closer to it because I, 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 I'm a friend to the animals. So you're saying that you stand silent and marvel at the beautiful creature that it is? In a manner of speaking, yes. That's great. Because I have some information <laughs> from a website uh-huh. uh, just to tell us more about black cats, um, tell us how much we like them. Um, I'm going to withhold two things. Number one, I'm going to withhold what website it's for. And okay. then number two, I'm going to withhold what the title is. Because that's a delightful little uh, amuse- <laughs> not amuse-bouche, the opposite of that. The, the- it's a dessert. Thank cherry you. Cherry on top. Uh, perfect. That's what you would say if you prepared this bit. <laughs> so let, let's, let's begin. Superstitions, okay. legends, yeah. myths. Historically, so much of what we believe comes from our individual origins. Whether we hail from Germany, whose legend suggests that if a black cat crosses your path from right to left, you run away, or Japan, where it is said that a black cat brings prosperity if you run towards it, we often acquire these superstitions at an early age and hold them throughout our lifetime. Do preconceived generalizations of black cats affect their adoptability? Black cats. That's another subheading. (laughs) Shiny, soft, dark fur that accents their mesmering yellow eyes. Silent, sleek. Cats that can sneak up on someone in surprise and scare. Some of us embrace their stealth-like qualities while others consider it deceptive. Dare we say witch-like. New heading. Incentive to embrace or adopt. That one's not as interesting, so we're just going to go to the next one. Okay. At the end of the day, these cats are like every other cat. They're living, breathing creatures that need nourishment, shelter, and love. Uh-huh. Uh, which I agree with. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at the end, it just uh, says, there's going to be a punchline here. Don't worry. It's not just I got to wait for the other shooter drop there, Isabel. Um, so when thinking about cat adoptions, please consider one of these. Super cute. Legendarily mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. Mythically entertaining. Mm-hmm. Felines. Those yeah, are all, I mean. Those are all line breaks. And then black cats, <laughs> perfect. But it's spelled per. But I'm not going to do that because I'm an adult. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So now here's the fun part. Two things. Uh, we're talking about black cats and what it means to adopt a black cat. So mm-hmm. I want you to come up with a title for me. And I want you to guess where could I be reading this pro-black cat adoption um, um, article from? You want me to title this article and, uh, and say where, where I would be able to like. Where you would publish this. Okay. <laughs> like, I would probably title the article something like, uh, Black Cat, colon, same as the other cats, except blacker? Um, okay. Or, or uh, some you such- You got the first, first part, right? It does start out black cats. But I would be something like, black. have you considered black cats, question mark? In, in the sense of, like, these cats are, are just as nice as any other cats, because there is, like, legitimately, like, 
black cats get adopted less because there's yeah. the the superstition associated to it. Whatever. Uh, where and where. Uh, I'm going to be a dunce and play along with the bit and say that I feel like this would be something that you would read in like a Humane Society pamphlet or at the SPCA, or maybe a, a, a mommy blogger would post this after they adopted a little cute black kitten. I mean, I, I like all these ideas. I like where you're going with them. Uh, it's stupider than either of those things. Don't worry. Okay. Well, I, I suspected as much. <laughs> so the title, uh, you got the first part, right? It's just black cats, period. And all that entails... Oh, boy. <laughs> really really loving the puns, huh? And it's for the blog on the separate website that Chicken Soup for the Soul made for their pet food. <laughs> oh, boy. Wait, um, did, did you know that Chicken Soup for the Soul's pet, flu- pet food has a blog? Because no, I do I now. I didn't even know that they there was Chicken Soup for the Soul branded pet food. Oh, absolutely. That's a... Everyone knows that, I thought, right? Got chicken soup for the pet. Uh, I mean, if you got chicken soup for firefighters, and you got chicken soup for, for teens or whatever, you got chicken soup <laughs> for prisoners and chicken soup for murderers um, that haven't been caught yet. That's the subtitle of it. You got to have chicken <laughs> soup for dogs. It's not I chicken mean, soup, though, which is... But, but dogs famously can't read. Uh, I mean, who am I to judge a dog that way? <laughs> oh, oh, okay, hold on. I was... Uh-oh. I spoke too soon. Uh-oh. Chicken Soup for the Soul does make a grain-free wet dog food chicken recipe stew. I apologize, Wait. Chicken Soup for the Soul. I was I was underestimating you um, as a company, as a brand, and as, as people. Wait, they ma- did you say that they make dog food flavored human food? <laughs> no, they make okay. dog food that is like flavored like human soup. It's like a okay. soup can. Instead of being wet food like you usually would have, it's just soup for your dog. Uh, which is a concept <laughs> i like a lot soup for your dog well th- this is like this is slightly less insane now that i've just remembered uh that uh there's uh, i forget the brand it's probably like purina or some shit they have these little novelty food containers for cats that they call little soups which is more or less just wetter wet food huh what? so that's a hmm and also they've got like cat barbecue they call they call it little grillers I guess it's supposed to I imitate. Love that. That's like, wonderful. I think it's supposed to imitate like grilled chicken or grilled fish or grilled the food that you normally get as cat food. So like chicken and turkey and uh, fish or whatever. There's not a million ways to do pet food. <laughs> I mean, you could uh, make it for pets. You can make it for people. Um, you can do a lot of things with pet food. That's the two things I have off the top of my head. But <laughs> you could eat it on a dare. Uh, you, you know, you can do you can do lots of things that I should talk about on my other podcast with pet food. But a oh boy, for a good time every other week. <laughs> this all led me to, um, because obviously, like you know, you're searching for chicken soup for the soul pet food. Oh, so it wasn't a moose bouche. Now it is because I, I I want to do a little, uh, more interesting reading, which is I want to talk about some Goodreads five star reviews of the Chicken Soup for the Soul book. This is only the first one. Uh, We're not going the, into the, the whole the OG. series. Okay. Oh, good, good reach. The, famo- the, the famously, uh, you know, uh, well-spoken, well-argued uh, masters of prose that are the uh, the reviewer Roddy at uh, at Goodreads.com. I mean, it's it's for only the most refined tastes, of course. So Review-a-roddy. the first one that I that okay. I loved. Um, this is from 
So it's from someone calling themselves Bogdan, but I'm pretty sure it's from uh, Jacques Derrida because it says, <laughs> everyone finds his own interpretation of the information read here. If you seek for answers or opinions, you will find them rather different. I like the book a lot and will turn back to it many times more in the future. And now I'm fascinated with the idea of difference applied to the chicken soup for the soul series. And I love the philosophical aspect of that. Like no one sees the same book or gains or, or gleans the same information. There's an infinite number of readings involved. Uh, and the marginal always imposes itself on the main text. Uh, it's like, like Pharmacon when you think about it. Um, Pharmacon. Laura says that unfortunately... I had to throw this book away after reading it. I'd worn it out. Whole sections could no longer be held together with tape. <laughs> Even though this was a rereading and many of the stories had become way too familiar over the years, parentheses, the starfish story. We all know the starfish story from Chicken Soup for the Soul. The story still had the power to make me cry, even in front of my students who were silently reading their own versions of Chicken Soup. I'm buying a new copy for next year. This is, I love it because it's nice and dystopian. This idea of this i'm I'm sure a very nice lady in her she's some situations where she has students and she's having those students read chicken soup for the soul which i think should be illegal <laughs> have you read any of the chicken soup for the soul books i'm just wondering no i've seen them around like my grandparents place but i ain't ever read them um i've read them because so the church i went to when i was a kid had like a separate house that I don't know why, but like they had like a like a library there, and that's where like the youth meetings and things were. And their library was all Christian books, obviously. And once you've read the Left Behind series, there's not much else there, so you got to go with something. And Chicken right. Soup for the Soul, it was it was one of the the better extrapolations of that concept. I would have to look up a full list of all the Chicken Soup for the Soul books. Um, but my brother, my brother and me has already done a bit on that, so I don't want to just repeat that. <laughs> Right. It is the most lukewarm water I've ever drank through my eyes. <laughs> I mean, I, I I suspected that it was sort of tepid folksy advice cover to cover. Uh, I'm not even sure advice is the thing I'd say. I'd say more inspiring Parables. stories about the Lord. Inspiring story. Okay. But the, but but like like when I say the Lord, it's a lot more like subdued. It, it's just like under this is subtextual Lord. Okay. It's, a, it's a lot like the that TV show, uh, Early Touch Edition. Angel? Oh, okay. No, Early Edition. Yeah, I, this is not the first time you've mentioned uh, Early Edition on this show. <laughs> I'm not surprised, actually, now that you say that. I, I was like, oh, Derek, I can tell you about Early Edition. But, of course, I've already talked about that. But, <laughs> and I can't talk, I cannot talk about it more because this is not an Early Edition podcast. It is not, though such a thing probably exists. Uh, I'm going to Google that while you tell people what we actually are. All right. We're actually a film podcast. Well, I mean, I keep saying that we're a film podcast, but every every episode we record, I think we're a movie podcast less and less. And we're just sort of a talk about whatever podcast, a very discursive, uh, wide ranging podcast. This happens to talk about movies regularly. So uh, in 2018, back when this show started, uh, which uh, this is the first episode that we are recording in 2021. So uh, it's going to be nearly three years that we're going to be in the process of doing this show. Um, but uh, back in the Halcyon days of the show, uh, Isabel brought to me a big old bracket with the top 250 films of all time, according to the Internet Movie Database. And it was like, which one of these is the best? You want to help me figure it out? And I was like, yes. 
but only if we add six movies to it and make a bracket out of it. And that's basically what we're doing. We're trying to find the greatest movie of all time, Asterisk. Uh, we are so close to the midway point. We're getting there. The we're almost round. there. We are. Um, and the halfway point of round one is going to be the one quarter mark of our show. Episode 32 is going to be officially 25%. At the end of like the next episode. Right? It feels like we just started. One quarter. So we, we've, we're, we're reaching a milestone. Next episode. Right now, this is episode 31. Who gives a shit? So <laughs> this is a, You can skip uh, this episode. It's not important. <laughs> that's right. Um, um, although, I so the, what you should listen to instead is the early edition podcast. Uh, not a great oh, name. Does it exist? But uh, it, was two, it was 2015. You know, no one knew how to name podcasts back then. I'm actually, okay. I'll be honest, I'm pretty disappointed. Uh, they only finished season three. They never got to season four. Uh, and their most recent post on their Facebook group was 2017. Uh, with the host telling uh, the followers about a new podcast that the host or one of the hosts is doing. Is it also uh, so about early edition? It is not. It is okay. uh, called, oh, oh, shit. This is a word I've seen before, but I never learned how to pronounce. Uh-oh. Oh, no. Uh, you know, okay, you know Frank Zappa? Uh-huh. Calliope. There we go. Did it. The, 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 the circus organ? Yeah. Yeah, know, Calliope. Like, yeah, I well, I always thought it was a Calliopeia or something because I didn't read it. I just looked at it for a second. Now, Cassiopeia is the name of a Japanese uh, jazz fusion band. I thought you were going to say Joanna Newsom song, but that works too. So Kyle Chandler is not in any of the movies we talked about today, unfortunately. No, but there are some uh, other stars, uh, some other uh, big names that uh, we're also fans of. Yeah, like Benjamin Bratt. <laughs> I I like Benjamin Bratt. He's all yeah, right he's- in Law and Order. I, I I don't really have a take on Benjamin. Demolition Man. Good good work and actor. Miss Congeniality. Yeah, I was gonna say Miss Congeniality next. Thanks for that. Uh Catwoman. Um I ain't seen Catwoman. You ain't seen Catwoman? What are you doing with your life? Uh watching a bunch of other movies that are not Catwoman. <laughs> including these. <laughs> you four. know what? Now that you say that, probably making the good decision. <laughs> uh so yeah, every episode we uh we chronicle two matchups in our bracket. Um and the two winners are going to face each other in the next round. So uh, in addition to sort of working our way towards the greatest movie of all time, Asterisk, we also set up the next round in a roundabout way. So this time around, here are our competitors. Witness for the Prosecution versus Rain de Basanti and Coco versus Stalker. Uh, kind, of, uh, 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 kind of a grab bag. Uh, a, uh, a, nice, uh, a nice spread of motion picture styles this time around. Uh, the, uh, okay. So first off the 66 seed, which is pretty high placement for a movie. I never thought about before this pod witness for the prosecution released in 1957, directed by Billy Wilder, a screenplay by Billy Wilder, Larry Marcus, and Harry Kernitz based on the witness for the prosecution by Agatha Christie, starring Tyrone power, Marlene Dietrich, Charles Lawton, and Elsa Lanchester. I'm shocked it's uh, that high. I really thought that, like, if you would have made me guess, I was guessing, like, I don't know, like 170 something. That is wildly high for a movie that, like you said, I have never really thought about before. Like, if you would have asked me which Billy Wilder movie is highest on this list, like, gun to my head, I would have said, like, seven movies before this one. <laughs> so, uh, where was it? Oh, yeah. So, uh, $2 million budget, $9 million take. Uh, and uh, nominated for six Academy Awards, ultimately winning zero, 
But it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Editing, and Best Sound Recording. Versus Rang de Basanti, um, released in 2006, directed by Rakesh Omprakash Mera, uh, written by Rakesh Omprakash Mera, uh, Kamlesh Pandey, and Rensil da Silva, starring returning, uh, returning favorite Amir Khan. Siddhartha, Atul Kulkarni, Sharman uh, Joshi, Kunal Kapoor, Alice Patton, and Soha Ali Khan. Uh, $280 million rupee budget. Uh, nearly a billion rupee take. Uh, I'm not sure what the rupee to uh, American dollar conversion is, but that seems like a very impressive number. I think I looked it up. It was like something like $300 million. That's not bad. Especially for the content of this film, which we'll get into. <laughs> And nominated for 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 Filmfare Awards, winning Best Film, Best Director, Best uh, best Actor, Critics Best Actor, Best Musical Director for A.R. Rahman, uh, Best Editing, and Best Cinematography. Holy shit! So I think we're going to have, not to, not to uh, spoil anything, but I think we're going to have a fair amount to say about Rang de Basanti. So let's talk about the little, uh, the the little legal procedural that could witness for the prosecution. Yeah, why not? Let's talk about <laughs> that. It's a, it's definitely a movie where things happen. It's a movie where things happen, and it's a, a, a case of, uh, a, like a, it's a case of like a of a little clockwork Hollywood machine. Kind of ticking along, doing his thing, and being quite entertaining in the process. Absolutely, and you know, and it's Billy Wilder, so you know, you got your good script going, and you've got your kind of crack direction going on at the same time. This movie kind of gets off to a rough start, and the blame can be placed squarely on the broad shoulders of one Charles Lawton. Yeah, what what did I text you when like this started? Was like, is this just a movie about a guy who's an asshole? Uh, and and uh, yeah, giant asshole Charles Lawton, uh, obviously a great actor of like uh, of early to mid Hollywood, known to film dorks as the uh, writer director of uh, masterpiece The Night of the Hunter. Absolutely, sadly the only film he ever directed. But yeah, and if that was any indication, I would have watched fucking everything he would have made, uh, which came out a little bit before uh, Witness for the Prosecution, incidentally. Um, and yeah, uh, so. Charles Lawton's character in this film uh, can charitably be called uh, a bit uh, a bit prickly. <laughs> I was going to say prickly as well, so I'm glad you chose that one. And uh, basically, the entire beginning of the film is basically him leaving the hospital because he's got like a, a heart condition. He's a he's a cardiac, as they say, and uh, he just spends the whole time fucking berating his nurse, which I was surprised to find out was it, it was played by his wife Elsa Lanchester, who was nominated for an Academy Award for basically being what we call in French a souffre douleur, and who you probably uh, know as the Bride of Frankenstein. That's right, the Bride of Frankenstein. Um, so this movie is like was basically. Charles Lawton being an asshole to his wife <laughs> for like <laughs> half an hour. And then it kind of settled into the Agatha Christie thing. And this is what we come here for. And much in the way, uh, much like Agatha Christie novels, this movie is like sort of compulsively watchable. It's like, it goes down real easy. It's really fun. It's got twists and turns. It's got stuff that you don't expect. It's got twists. It's like, 
it's it's uh, I I hate this I hate to say this like this, but it's kind of perfect for what it is. It's just kind of like a late fifties Hollywood legal thriller, but eventually also Charles Lawton's performance kind of becomes not nuanced, but he stops just being a giant asswipe. Uh, so he plays he plays functionally like a lawyer, and um, and uh, he's got like a hard problem. So his doctor's like, "No fucking hardcore cases, bud," and he's like, "Ah," uh, and that's basically what Charles Lawton sounds like. <laughs> Uh, it, so- it sounds like it sounds like someone stepping on a duck, but uh, you know that's not his fault. That's just that's just his voice. So, but uh, along comes along comes Tyrone Power, a guy with an awesome name that I'm surprised wasn't nicked by a star of porn, and comes in and he's like, "Oh well, I've been accused." Uh, very very genially says, "I've been accused of murder, but I I, I didn't do it. I tell you." And against his doctor's orders, he takes the case. And uh, turns out he's married to Marlene Dietrich, who's really good in this movie, um, except for one part where she's not good, but that's on purpose. But we'll talk about it. Yep. There, it's this whole thing of like conflicting motivations, conflicting story. There's uh, there's a will. There's Tyrone Power befriending an old lady who left him five figures in a will she had recently edited. Uh, Marlene Dietrich is like, you know what? Fuck my husband. <laughs> Um, and there's like sort of this political intrigue because this is the late, uh, this is the late fifties and Marlene Dietrich and Tyrone Power got married in Germany. Marlene Dietrich is German in case you didn't know. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of intrigue going on and it's basically just, it's a legal thriller. It's like, does this guy, does this guy get off? Uh, can Charles Larton pull off? Uh, pull off a convincing defense, even though his ticker is going to fucking give out. It's it's a really entertaining movie. And I mean, when you think about it, if a porn actor had taken the name Tyrone Power, that's also going to be about whether he gets off. So mm-hmm. that's yep. that's why they pay me the big bucks, folks. By which I mean yeah, zero zero dollars. <laughs> so, what did you think of Witness for the Prosecution? Um, I thought that the first like fifteen minutes were not good, um, and the rest sure. of it was pretty pretty darn good. Uh, yep. I think that Charles Lawton in this is a spice. Like, like his assholeness is a really good spice when the rest of the film kind of blooms around him and there's stuff going on. Then his little asides are charming. But when that's all you're getting is just him being a prick over and over and over to people who absolutely do not deserve it. It's a little insufferable. Uh, yeah, like, and that's the first thing that we start off with, that we don't get any shading to the Charles Lawton character until Tyrone Power shows up. Yes. Which is like 20 minutes into the movie. But once it happens, I think the film really starts moving uh, very, very well. I think mm-hmm. that the thing I was a little bit uh, pleasantly surprised by, uh, I shouldn't be because it's Billy, Billy Wilder, like you said, but that there's actually good shots in this movie and like interesting direction. And mm-hmm. it's not just like a lot of other courtroom dramas, like even... Uh, Charlotte Nuremberg, which we talked about previously, that's pretty. It feels comparatively staid. Yes, uh, this film has a lot more dynamism, and there's there's like that really wonderful shot when they're entering the prison for the first time, and it's angled up in a way that almost makes it look like a German expressionist film. Super cool shot, uh, like very much like a shot out of M. I think that Tyrone Power and Marlene Dietrich, Marlene Dietrich, um, give their characters the kind of shading that makes it genuinely interesting to see where things go. Um, because Tyrone Power, it's clear there's something wrong <laughs> with him as soon as he shows up. He's way too go- G. Willikers, golly G when he starts yeah. off. He's, 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 he's leaning on his innocence a little bit too hard. Yeah. Um, but as it goes along, 
at least like I was increasingly convinced, oh, that was a red herring. There's something else going right. on here. And it turns out it was a red herring, but not for the thing you thought it was. And that's, it's, it's entertaining in the moment, but it also speaks to one of the problems with this film is that it has the same problem as a lot of Agatha Christie uh, novels and stories, which is that the ending answer is not very satisfying. At least to me, it's not. It's like how at the end of Murder on the Orient Express, spoilers for Murder on the Orient Express, for if you somehow <laughs> don't know what happens at the end of that, hey, guess what? Murder? The entire train does it. And that's that's the solution. <laughs> and you read that and you're like, what? I, I just read that's this whole story stupid. for this. And in this one, it's not as egregious, but the ending is just, oh, they were all lying. And Marlene Dietrich Turns and out. Tyrone Power are actually still in love. And they were both just lying for each other. Except. Except. Uh, Tyrone Power was seeing someone else on the slide. Yeah. And they, like, in an act, I guess in an act of what I can only, in what I can only imagine is an act of hubris that you can only do whenever you've just been acquitted <laughs> of murder. You just kind of monologue with your side piece at your wife about how awesome it's going to be when they go like you know fucking the Bahamas or whatever. Instead of just being like, "Hey, get out of here for a couple minutes," just I'm fucking deal off, with some yeah. stuff. But no, hey, I mean, or, hey. t- or telling the other person to fuck off. Yeah, it sounds like he wasn't great at doing the murder either. So maybe he's just no. a bad criminal. <laughs> uh, I think he, I think it's I think he may just suck. But uh, but um, but yeah. So uh, spoilers for witness for the prosecution. Uh, Tyron Power gets fucking stabbed with the he he, he gets a, a bit of hair to the dog that bit him in the case of uh, but in this case it's a knife and he gets in the abdomen uh, wielded by Merlina Dietrich. That's the disappointing part. But the rest of it I quite liked a lot, especially uh, there was one part that I thought was bad until the things came later, and then I loved, which is I even <laughs> messaged you when this happened. So there's a part in the movie where uh, Sir Wilford Roberts QC, which is Charles Lawton's character, or Robarts, I'm sorry, not Roberts, uh, gets a call that essentially it's someone on the other line saying, I have the evidence you need to sew up this case, because right now it looks like uh, they're going to lose. And he's like, okay. And he, well, he doesn't say that. He says it in a, in a dickish way. But he, he, say, he basically says, okay. And they go down to a bar or like a train station. But this person on the phone yeah. and the person they meet at the bar has what I can only, I can only describe as like someone beating the shit out of a Cockney accent. <laughs> and I, I, I messaged you, the what of the Europe. fuck accent is this person doing? Because it was it's like a, utterly baffling. I think it's. It's like someone doing a bad American accent, doing a bad Cockney accent. Yes, 100%. There's like a bunch of like layers to it. It would also switch into like, I'd be like, is this like supposed to be like Polish? Or like, like what is going on here? And you find out later, boom, that was Marlena Dietrich. And she was just um, tricking Charles Lawton. Doctored evidence. Um, and uh, yeah, fabricating evidence to be able to make Charles Lawton be able to win the case, which gets Tyrone Power off. Uh, which is her goal, even though he actually committed the crime, but these make him look innocent and disgraces her in the process, which needed to happen in order for Tyrone Power to to leave unscathed. Easy to do to a German national in the 50s. Yes. That's also one thing that I, it's not exactly a criticism, but I was expecting a little bit more of that. I even texted you pretty early on, like, I feel like there's a Nazi thing going on here. And there isn't really, besides that exact thing, which is, taking her persona and her presence and using the fact that she's German 
and this is set more or less immediately after World War II as its own kind of uh, like an explanation of why the jury might feel a certain way about her. Right. And I thought that was interesting, but I wanted a little bit more there, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I, fe- I felt like that would have sort of, um, not impeded, but I felt like that would have sort of bogged down the specific energy, the Christie-esque energy this was going for. Certainly. I, it would have made it into, like, a movie where there's, like, themes <laughs> instead of it being a very, very well done, <laughs> uh, you know, clockwork little mystery. That's right. And, yeah, as is, it's like... This is this is a, a textbook case of what people might call a minor masterpiece. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. Oh, I mean, I I would say that like the last thing I wanted to say is I think a lot of my problems with this kind of film in general, and even to the modern day, like something like uh, n- knife knife knife. I was gonna say knifed. At first, I almost said knocked out. Then I almost said knock knock. Then I almost said knifed out. But it's knives out. Yes, knives out. Um, which does some other things, but uh, a lot of the criticisms I would have of that and this movie, uh, you should read uh, The Simple Art of Murder by Raymond Chandler, uh, where he goes through a bunch of different kinds of detective fiction, like three different stages, um, and addresses many of the criticisms I would have. And also just Raymond Chandler, turns out, good writer. Good writer, of course. Um, But I think I've said enough about Winners for the Prosecution, and I need to talk for like six hours about Rang Divasanti, because... Holy shit, is there everything possible in this movie? If you are new to the show, if this happens to be your first episode, first of all, welcome. Thank you for for choosing our little podcast to entertain you during these trying times. So a while ago, so one of the quirks of the IMDb Top 250 is that it's not, it's, it's, of course, it's a lot of Hollywood stuff. It's a lot of American stuff. But one of the quirks of the list is that there are... The odd, there are odd films here and there that neither of us have ever heard of because we don't really keep our ears to the ground when it comes to Bollywood cinema or Turkish popular cinema or, and those are the two big ones. It's India and Turkey. Yeah. And we stumbled upon, and this is how we got to cross paths with a little movie called Three Idiots, which runs really deep in middle middle brow madness lore. It was the first veto, right? It was the first veto. Uh, it's the first time. Uh, it's the first Indian film that we uh, covered on the show, and the first Indian film I've seen in a long time. Same. And uh, I think probably the at that point probably the sort of archetypal popular Indian film that I had seen at the, up until that point. A hundred percent. I mean, and I'd never I, seen a Bollywood film before. Like I, uh, I uh, thought it was like really interesting, just because of. Uh, the thing that that uh, kind of draws me, or the thing that interests me about this, is like sort of the tonal whiplash. Um, Isabel adored it. I, I I still love that fucking movie. It 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 owns. I'm really excited to, to like rewatch it. And uh, a a a not insubstantial part of that was due to uh, a man named Amir Khan, who Amir Khan is m- the best. <laughs> He's a, he's wonderful. Uh, he is he's a really good actor. I, I um first of all, if you even mention his name on Twitter, a bunch of uh, uh uh his fans will come to your mentions and tell you how much they love you, which is great. It's like the K-pop hive. I love it. 
except they seem like they have more positive energy than the K-pop hive, at least from what I've seen. Uh, now you've done it. Now you're going <laughs> to stick the K-pop stands on us. Eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I like I like Blackpink, if that helps anybody. I am familiar with Blackpink. <laughs> I don't have an opinion. And um, the, the thing that I said on Twitter, uh, or not, not that I just said on Twitter, but I mean, on Twitter I said he was like one of the greatest movie stars I've ever seen. And I really mean that in a certain sense that we don't really have movie stars in America anymore. We have people who are in movies who are very, very big. Um, But there's no one who's like, I don't know, like like Gary Cooper or like, like, you know what I mean? Like there's no one. Like Robert Redford and Paul Newman. Or, I mean, Tom Cruise is the last one still standing, really, right? Tom Cruise is the last one. He's the last of the bigs. It's the last of the people who like you see on screen and there's just something about them. They have that thing that makes you go, that is the movie. This is who's here. Well, this is a difference between Tom Cruise and Amir Khan. Uh, Tom Cruise has been embroiled in controversy because of, you know, Scientology and this and that and the other thing. Whereas Amir, Amir Khan, Khan has been embroiled in controversy because he owns and he seems really cool. <laughs> because of his kind of political stances and political stances that uh, by and large reflect a, um, how does one say? Uh, uh, socially conscious, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know if I would go so far as to say anti-governmental, but definitely government-critical um, uh, stances. That I mean, I mean, you're you're on Twitter. You've seen ostensible, you know, anti-government celebrities and the stuff that they say. It's cringeworthy. Oh, hundred percent. Amir Khan seems like the real deal. Yeah, because <laughs> he puts his fucking money where his mouth is, and by money I mean every single one of the movies of his that we've done on this show are a societal problem film. Three Idiots is functionally a fart comedy about how corrupted the Indian education system is. Uh-huh. Uh, like Stars on Earth, which didn't make it to round two, but still kind of left a, left its mark, is uh, a, uh, a passion project he, that he produced and directed about how shitty teachers treat kids that have sort of uh, learning difficulties. And now we have Rang de Basanti. <laughs> Which is about how political assassination is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so for those who haven't haven't seen this film, oh, essentially boy. it is um, two parallel stories. It's about this woman, mm. um, a British woman who's a film student who travels to India uh, to document the story of five uh, white woman, crucially white. Woman. Yes, white woman um, who uh, wants to document the story of five particular people from the Indian Revolutionary Movement. Um, and at the same time as that's happening, she meets like a modern day, or at least like 2006 modern day, uh, college kids, at least ostensible college, college kids. kids. Well, what did she look like? Like, air like Amir Khan was like 40 something when he, he made this? He was in his mid forties playing 22, which is insane it's, because he did the same thing in three idiots. It's so charming. I love it. I love it. It's it's so jarring. It's like there's like I think you would point it out in the chat. I mean, yeah, Amir Khan is great, but it's like there's some strong how are you, how, how do you do fellow kids energy yeah, for someone playing like, half their age, like the leather jacket he wears all the time. It's great. Oh boy. Um, and these two stories essentially like as all these students more or less that they uh, the main characters is kind of uh, ensemble cast of students. They're all pretty apathetic at the beginning of of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one who is in the army. They're boozing um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, just hanging out, doing but shit. They all feel very dejected about the state of modern Indian society um, for reasons that we will discuss later in this discussion because I think they're fascinating. Mm. And through the process of learning to act in this movie, 
and learning more about like these five people that they're portraying, they get radicalized. They get radicalized. Uh, and especially there's one event uh, in particular that radicalizes them, which I want to talk about more in depth, so I don't want to say it right now. But sure. there's a specific event that radicalizes them. And essentially they go, hey, you know how the people we're portraying did a political assassination? What if dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. Uh, oh, so boy. <laughs> besides. OK, I will say um, just to get all my cards on the table. Besides one thing it does at the end that in my opinion kind of betrays the rest of the movie in a weird way. I fucking adore this movie. I think I might, I might like it more than Three Idiots. Oh, man. See, I like it about as much as I like Three Idiots just because there's so much to fucking wrap my head around. Yeah, there really is. And, um, and it has the same thing where there's so many tones and so many different things uh, happening. It kind of flips it, whereas Three Idiots was mostly a comedy film that had these other darker parts going on. This is mostly a drama film that has all these like lighthearted and kind of silly things going on underneath it. And There's like a motorcycle race set to like fucking... <laughs> These like sort of driving sort of uh, early two thousands guitar. It's, there's a, it's there's scored a sick by just guitar an electric solo. guitar. Um, it's like um, yeah, and they're like it has like it in in the scene that might as well have been in Three Idiots. We are introduced to the characters of uh, Amir Khan and uh, what's his name? Um, Sharman Joshi. Uh, that's the one who also um, was in Three Idiots. Who also was in Three Idiots. And uh, we are introduced to both of their characters having a drinking contest on a ledge over a body of water. And the rules of the drinking contest appear to be lean back and drink as much as you can. First one to fall into the water loses. Yeah, that seems to be how it works. <laughs> and I mean, the okay, so the movie does a really good fake out at the beginning where it's like it's it's in London. We're setting up the story and it sets it up as like this white savior story, which, you know, it's not going to be. But Sue basically does nothing for the last 45 minutes of the movie, other than, like, be worried and sad. Yeah, which I think is actually kind of a really fascinating choice. And I don't know if this is, like, I don't know if it's, like, an anti-colonial film, but it's definitely kind of a, I, I saw it described somewhere as a, as a post-post-colonial film. Sure, yeah, yeah. Where I think a lot of, like, assumptions from post-colonial, like, politics are already taken as given, and it's trying to do something with those in a really to fascinating way. Yeah. So yeah, this this movie starts with white a white girl going to India to shoot this movie, and it ends with uh, a brotherhood of radicals fucking shoot just fucking Charles Bronsoning a guy <laughs> on his bike. It's quite and, a journey, and it's it's I think we have limited experience, admittedly, with Bollywood films, and I would really like anyone who has more experience to chime in on this particular thing that I'm going to say. But if I had to describe Bollywood filmmaking in one way, because we've also seen like Gangs of Wasipur, the name of the game appears to be Escalation. <laughs> we start at a place and we just shoot straight up. We don't sort of ease into anything. We just aim the gun towards the sun and just fire away, baby. All, no rules just right. Just escalate. <laughs> just jam the gas and see where you end up. And while it's such that's a different way of making movies than like we're used to. And I will say I'm starting to get accustomed to it. And I really like it. It's really cool. Like it's I, really I don't it, think it, I'm like there's no yet. moment of this film that isn't fun. Or at least like interesting. I, I, I it's very interesting as like a cinematic as a cinematic object. But I don't think I'm at that point where you are, where it's like, 
like the the exhilaration is still novel as like a film. I still think that the whiplash is interesting, but betrays a kind not a lack of control, but like a lack of like synthesis somewhere. And I think I'm still trying to get my bearings, which might explain why I'm consistently lowballing these compared to you. I don't dislike them at all, <laughs> but they're a lot to wrap my head around. See, I think it's a lot like I'm also. Uh, this is a problematic film, but um, I'm a big sure. fan of. Uh, I believe it's called Thirteen Hours. Is that the right number of hours? The uh, the Michael B- Bay, the Bay film? film about Benghazi. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it does a similar thing in a certain problematic sense. everything. Where Michael Bay, A, there's not a single shot he can do straight. There has to be a Dutch angle on it. There has to be like some weird spinning. There has to be something going on. And this mm-hmm. film's very similar. Like you mentioned, like even yeah. like second unit, like shots are like at wild Dutch angles and are like constantly moving. Yeah. And there's super Establishing weird. shots yes. are at a Dutch angle. <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, and the end of 13 Hours does another weird tonal whiplash where it's this entire movie about... Um, uh, the guy from the office um, shooting a bunch John of brown Krasinski. people and how that's rad. But the end of it, all of a sudden it becomes a Malick film and uh, it slows oh, down. It shows a bunch of like waving grass and like it, it it's has, I, I feel like I remember a voiceover that might just be me recreating things in my head, but it is also this word. Uh, no, it's, it's wordless. Um, it's this wordless, really tender portrait of um, women going to these fields where like all of their like all the men in their life just died at and like sorting through the wreckage and just spends time with them there and it's it's this really strange tonal thing uh that i think is genuinely kind of fascinating i think that movie's really interesting but because i'm used to a lot of movies like an interesting filmmaker he sure is we should talk about pain and gain sometime we should have added that to this list uh which i think is genuinely a masterpiece it's really good. It's real good. Uh, and way smarter than you probably think it is. But uh, go, go listen to the Stuck in the Middle with You episode about uh, <laughs> Pain and Game. Um, but those tonal shifts and that kind of weird, like, uh, never taking off the gas is something that I, I already look for in a lot of Hollywood movies. This is just kind of an extension of that and an, an intensifying of that that I think is very satisfying. It's er- everything happens constantly in I mean, this it, film. And it's why I also love, love exposure. Another film that I have not seen because it seems daunting. It's it's the quickest four hours you'll ever have. I was going to say, that's like four hours and change, yeah, right? It's wonderful. Uh, everyone go watch Love Exposure by uh, Sion Sono. Good luck finding it. Uh, you can. Uh, there's, there's ways and means on the internet, but <laughs> not that I'd be promoting those ever. So there's a lot of things that I really love about this movie that I kind of want to get into, um, but I don't want to, like, means. like, political things especially, but I don't want to, like, just, like, bulldoze you. Um, I, I am perfectly willing to be bulldozed because I don't think, like, I think I've said everything I need to say. Okay. I, I think I, I said everything I felt. I mean, it's like, it's the same thing that happened to me when I saw Three Idiots. It's like, this is a really interesting movie. And, and this one is especially interesting because it's, like, sort of... Uh, ripe with history, uh, which you will now spill for us. So I don't mind being bulldozed in this case. Yeah, um, some of this history I knew, a lot of it I didn't. And that's kind of what I really enjoyed about this movie is that I think it's, I can't say how education is in Canada, although I'm assuming it's relatively similar. Uh, We did not learn much about any revolution after the American Revolution. That was pretty much it. And uh, 
they were like, oh, yeah, the Russian Revolution happened. But, you know, not much more. We learned about how uh, we learned about um, the uh, fuck. I forget the name of the conflict where the where the uh, I remember where the fucking conflict took place. (laughs) I'd be really embarrassed. (laughs) What, What happened in it? Uh, the, 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 the British beat the, beat the pants off the French, uh, at the plains of Abraham. Why can't I fucking remember? I have no clue what you're talking about. Hold on. Hold on. Uh, was this in another oh, country? It's, uh, oh, it's the battle of the plains of Abraham. <laughs> I've never heard of this. AKA the battle of Quebec was a pivotal battle. In the, it was part oh, of the seven years gotcha, war. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. It was part of the seven years war. It was fought where Quebec city currently stands. And it was fought between France and Britain over the fate of New France, influencing the later uh, creation of Canada. So, but the thing is, we don't we don't learn about revolutions. Period. We didn't learn about the American Revolution. We knew it was a thing. Did you learn about the French uh, Revolution? I, no. Wow. I mean, we knew it was a thing, but we didn't learn about the French Revolution because here's here's the thing about Quebec's education. It's very Quebec centric. <laughs> it's very Quebec centric. So much so that we didn't learn about the French Revolution. Uh, we, but we didn't learn about revolutions. The one revolution that we did learn about was the Quiet Revolution of the 1950s, <laughs> which was more of a cultural revolution than a than an actual sort of armed conflict. Um, but uh, I digress. Okay. But I think that's a, that's a short way of saying that um, I think almost everyone listening to this, unless they sought the information out themselves, doesn't know jack shit about the Indian Revolutionary Movement. I don't know shit about the Indian Revolution. I, I know Gandhi's a person. <laughs> Um, yes, that I've heard of before, and I think I think it'd also be fair to say that at least in like North America, ninety five percent of the people who know who Gandhi is couldn't tell you what he's actually famous for or like what era of like Indian history he's part of. I could one hundred percent tell you that I had no idea who Bhagat Singh was. Yes, exactly. So the um, freedom fighters that they portray in this film. Um, I'm going to be editing this a lot because I'm going to mispronounce like all of these. And I apologize ahead of time because uh, even with practice, I'm not going to do great with these. So there's uh, Bhagat Singh, Chandrit Shakar Azad, Ramprasad Bismil, Shivram Rajguru, and Ashfakala Khan. Or Ashfakala Khan. I'm not entirely sure. Oh, I actually didn't do too bad with those. I'm surprised. I- yeah, you seem, seem to do pretty good <laughs> as far as I know. I probably did terrible for anyone who's a native speaker, but hey, I'd never heard of any of these fucking people before, which is, A, I got to learn more about them, and now I want to learn even more about them, which is super cool. Uh, just like a little thing for me as a Westerner I get to enjoy. But also, uh, the this film is so explicitly political and on its face political in ways that American films never are. Like it opens with um, one of these <laughs> characters reading Lenin. Like reading Vladimir yep, Lenin. sure does. And it doesn't shy away from the fact that these people were socialists, like all of them, uh, which is yep. such a fascinating thing that uh, like even like, like when you learn about Helen Keller in American schools, you never hear that she was like incredibly political and like a communist and did a lot of union work and things like that. You just hear about the fact that you basically just hear um, like triumph porn for people who aren't disabled. And it's so cool to see a movie present that so directly because I can't imagine that ever happening in America. And then also be so directly in conversation with modern Indian politics. And this is the thing I know a little bit more about. For people who don't know, 
Uh, Narendra Modi is the current um, current prime minister, prime of minister of India, and bad guy, bad guy. He's a Hindu nationalist in uh, the most severe sense of that that term, uh, in which he let's say he would prefer it if there were no more Muslims in his country. Mm. Um, and uh, he was uh, a part a member of the RSS or this one I am gonna fuck up. Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sang, I believe it would be something close, uh, which is a paramilitary like volunteer organization that is very famous for being uh, some of the main participants in the Gujarat riots in 2002. Uh, are you aware of this, Derek? No. So uh, this is going to be a bummer. <laughs> if you can imagine that, ethnic cleansing is not oh, a great boy. thing. So oh, no. <laughs> in 2002... Um, so they're referred to as the Gujarat riots, but more accurately, they could be called the Gujarat pogroms. Um, it began, uh, it was like three days long. It began with, uh, like the burning of a train car, uh, which killed, um, some Hindu pilgrims. And there was a wide outbreak of violence, um, perpetrated mostly by Hindu nationalists, uh, organizations and the police. I'm not going to get into details because it's, it's really fucking rough. But um, a thousand people died, um, two hundred approximately went missing, and at least twenty five hundred were injured. Um, and of the dead, um, seven hundred ninety were Muslim, and two hundred fifty four were Hindu. And what do you call other sources? So like those are official sources, <laughs> whereas other sources right. say that death tolls were probably over two thousand. Uh, that's really bad. Uh, that we? is, yeah. Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, and now one something of, something of a uh, what call it. Crime against what's it when you do a crime on humanity? <laughs> Something like that. Okay, we'll figure it out. We'll hash it out. The Prime Minister of India currently um, has often been accused of initiating that violence, and he definitely did condone it without saying as many words. He did it the way that Trump condones violence, where it's like, yeah. I was going to say that sounds awful familiar. Yeah, um, and the reason I think this is really important background information is that the film is very explicitly in conversation especially with the RSS and Modi, because one of the characters in it is a character called Lakshman uh, Pandi, who is initially a lower ranking. Uh, he's one of the, the goon leaders in uh, the RSS equivalent in this film. I'm not sure if they actually are the RSS, but I, I don't believe they are. But they're clearly I them. I don't think so. Um, if, like, if you're familiar at all, it's clearly them. And he becomes disillusioned with them throughout the course of the film because he realizes a, that Muslims are people, which is a great thing to realize. But B, um, he realizes that they're just corrupt and they're just there to make money and they don't actually care about India like they say they do. Um, they really just care about lining their own pockets. And he also learns that like India as this concept is more than just Hindu nationalism, uh, which is – it sounds cheesy when I say it, but like it's a, obviously a good thing to know. And the fact that it's – it's something that a lot of people have not figured out. Yeah, uh, it's not good. This film, A, has a character. B, has a Muslim character in it uh, who is very explicitly shown to be discriminated against and has this open problem uh, with this character who very much hates him and is very much shown as, as hating him and has some interesting dynamics with his family versus all his friends who are Hindu. I think, so there, there's a lot to like kind of dissect in there that I'm going to mostly hold off until we talk about this next round preview of my vote but mm. the thing that i really want to point out that i thought was super cool and had a lot of things going for it was 
Um, Amir Khan is Muslim. He doesn't play the uh, Muslim character in this, but he's but he himself is he himself is Muslim, and it's clear why this kind of story would appeal to him. And I think it's really fascinating a that essentially the biggest star in India um, currently is Muslim because mm-hmm. there is such a large um, amount of the population who um, is not a fan of that. Let's say, and also just because. It makes a lot of the politics in this feel incredibly urgent and incredibly like like felt instead of just portrayed. And uh, there's a lot of like little subtext things. Like I want to in the future talk about the way that it talks about nationalism, like in like India versus like nationalism maybe in a country that wasn't colonized and how those things are pretty different. Like there's a really fascinating detail, which is that the reason Sue wants to make this documentary is because her grandfather was in charge of killing these revolutionaries. Right. Which is such a like a fascinating detail that there's a lot to talk about there. And the ways in which like the film very much talks about how it doesn't matter what you do. Like it doesn't matter how perfect you are, even if you're this amazing fighter pilot who gives your life saving an entire ton of people uh when you could have ejected from a plane. That's a thing that happens in the film. Um there is a essentially like it's all set off by bad parts being imported from Russia to be used in planes because of some corruption. And those bad parts cause the planes to crash very often. And one of the friends is a pilot. And there is a point where he could have ejected from his plane as it was crashing, but he didn't. Instead, he stayed with it to steer it away from a town and saved you know thousands of people. And the defense ministry uh, instead says, no, he was a bad pilot and there's nothing wrong with the planes. And that kind of is what really sets like the ultimate radicalization to happen. And that is who they assassinate later is the defense minister. Because at that point, when uh, when the pilot dies, that's the point where the movie really starts to fucking snowball. Yeah, it all happens real, real fast. And there's a line before that happens and a line after that happens that I think are incredible. Uh, one okay. speaks to like the pessimism before it and one speaks to like, their radicalized like courage afterwards whereas before this really happens at one point they're all kind of down because they just watched the end of the movie they made which is pretty depressing and um they're on a bar just kind of sitting around and um a lot of the characters but especially like uh amir khan is are are being very pessimistic and at one point he says and i wrote this line down because i loved it he says not even the street dogs will bark when we die which is some metal ass <laughs> shit, but also it speaks to like the dissolution, like the nihilism and the dis- disillusionment that a is clearly like was clearly felt in India at the time. I can't speak to now because I'm not very well versed in Indian politics, but at least at the time, um, and I think in most of the world, uh, has been felt uh, in the modern era because it feels so like there isn't anything you can do, and I think was definitely a huge part of millennial politics before the last couple years and even now um is kind of re-emerging in some parts of the left that i don't like very much but uh so he says that before he gets radicalized and then later they assassinate the defense minister but then he becomes a martyr so in order to clarify what they were actually trying to do uh him and the rest of the group hijack a radio station the radio station and explain what they did and it's also when you learn that uh, one of the characters whose dad was involved in this corruption, that character killed his dad. 
Um, yeah, Karan Singhania fucking... kills his dad. Uh, this movie uh, goes places. Yes. Um, which I want to talk about the David Berman parallels with that also later, but uh, I, we've already gone an hour and 15 the, fucking the, minutes. The Silver Jews guy. Uh, yes, the Silver Jews guy, uh, which there's a whole story about that and his own dad that I want to get into later. He didn't murder him, but there's a there's a parallel. But um, okay. so at the end of this, after they have been all like shot, essentially, and they're going to die in this um, radio station. They die in a fucking freeze frame. <laughs> Um, they die in a freeze frame. Like this is a fucking John. They, like this is a fucking John Hughes movie or something. But right before that, um, Amir Khan says, "My blood wanted to be free." Mm-hmm. What a badass Again, thing metal. to say! Like very metal, very badass, and also really expresses like the fact that um, there's a line repeated a couple times from the person who killed uh, the uh, the char- the uh, characters from the Indian Revolutionary Movement, um, where he says, "I used to think there were two people." Uh, two kinds of people who went to their death. One went crying and one went like silent. And then I met the third and these are the third because they've, they have the courage and they've, they've realized that their life is more than just their life. The one thing I will say about this movie I didn't like is. I know exactly what you're going to say. I'm sure you do. So this is an entire movie where the point of it is the only way to make political change is violence, is a radical action that they could not get things done through the system. And then in like the last five minutes, um, while they're doing the radio broadcast, the character who's doing, who's saying those things, uh, which is Quran, he says, you should join the police. You should run for office. You should become a teacher. And it's like, motherfucker, we just watched the police like we literally part of the movie is we watch a police the police beat an old woman till she's in a coma. Until she's in a coma. Yeah. How much do you want to bet this was a censor thing? I like the censor board is like, come on. I would highly bet that exact thing. It's still disappointing because the end of it makes sure. it feel like really like, oh guys, that's not what the entire movie's about. But I'm willing to like like I, like I said, take that, take the rest of the movie as the actual point and that just being like you said, a censor thing. But holy shit, we talked for an hour and eighteen minutes. The guy, the, well, well, you talked for mostly that, but the yeah, guy sorry. was also knew that his number was up, so maybe he was started saying stupid shit. Who knows? Maybe. Um. So okay, so I think I'm I'm going to adopt a, a position for my future um, decisions on this show. I think Witness for the Prosecution is a better movie. Hogwash, ridiculous. I think Rang the Basanti is a better text. It's richer. It'll make for a better. It'll make for a better podcast. I still have so many notes that I didn't get to. And like, I just talked for like fucking 20 minutes by myself. And yeah, and also this tease of like, there's a lot more material here. I I think I know whoever wins here probably goes down in the next round. So I don't feel too bad about letting a movie like Rang the Basanti go ahead. Because certainly I'm not using a veto on Witness for the Prosecutor. <laughs> okay. Congratulations um, to our hero, Amir. Uh, we'll see you twice so next that's, round. That's Amir Khan 2, David Fincher 0, just to remind you. <laughs> who's, uh, who's so yeah, the congratulations to Ryan DeBasanti. I mean, I, we, we've seen like stars on Earth. <laughs> you know, the actor is a tour. He's what, you know. Ah, uh, well, I've never seen, I've never seen David Fincher act. The most I've seen David Fincher act is that, that, that one Polaroid he, uh, uh, that he took with Madonna in the early 90s when they were dating. <laughs> I thought you were going to say he acts like Alien 3 isn't a good movie. I mean, a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, they're all, they're all I, cucks. I, 
I, I have not seen Alien 3. The Alien 3 assembly cut is the best Alien movie. Uh, and I realize I'm an insane person by saying that, but I need to. I was gonna say that's that's I haven't seen Alien Three, but that seems like an insane take I, to have like <laughs> the fucking uh, that to have the fucking uh, uh, director's cut Moon Goth Alien be the number one Alien. I mean, when Alien and Aliens both exist as the Moon Goth here on this podcast. Good point. Fair enough. Um, but congratulations, Rongi Basanti, and holy shit, we gotta talk about Stalker and Coco. Okay, let's 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 run through this. Um, let's Stalker start wins next tape. episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, we gotta do the formalities. Let's, let's do it. Let's let's go. Let's keep our let's let's keep ourselves tight. Uh, sixty three seed in this matchup. Uh, Coco. Uh, that was I'm on the disambiguation page. Yeah, it was higher than uh witness for the prosecution. Uh, I bet it's yeah, not it's anymore. Still, yeah, uh, probably not. Because yeah, this the, the thing with the IMDb list is that re- recency bias is a real thing. Yeah. Um, Coco, released in 2017, directed by Lee Unk- uh, Lee Unkrich, written by a- uh, Adrian Molina and Matthew Aldrich, uh, starring Anthony Gonzalez, Gal Garcia Bernal, Benjamin Bratt, Alana Ubach, Renee Victor, uh, uh, and uh, um, oh, fuck, uh, oh yeah, Edward James almost um, the very same, the very same. Uh, but then again, who does? Uh, $175 million budget, $807 million take at the Academy Awards. Uh, and if I'm not mistaken, it was nominated for two and one one. Probably what, what best song and, um, best anime yeah. film. By the way, it did drop in IMDb yeah, Top 250. That's 250? exactly it. And it won, and it won both. Um, so it dropped in the IMDb Top 250. Do you want to guess what it's at now? 73. 75. Ah, here's the thing. Pretty good movie. We'll talk about it. Yeah. Uh, against, or rather, uh, versus, uh, Stalker, which is hey, the Derek. 194 hey, seed in this film. Hey, Derek. Yeah. Do you want to hear a really uh-huh. good joke? Uh-huh. Stalker, huh? What is this? A movie about a guy who eats too much celery? <laughs> so that one didn't land great. Do you want me to hear another joke? Do you want to hear another joke? Okay, if you must. Stalker, huh? What is this? A movie about a guy who eats too much rhubarb? <laughs> you got another one in the chamber there, Isabel, that you got to get out of your system? Uh, yeah, I figured, you know, what, if, comedy is a rule of threes. Got to have uh, one more to go. Sure. So, uh, Stalker, huh? Is it a movie about someone, generally but not always a politician or finance person, who outwardly displays intentions they know to be false in order to further an unacknowledged and ideally unsuspected motive? Stalking horse. That, uh, <laughs> that reference. Oh boy! I love the phrase "stalking horse" because it gives me a very sinister image of like a like a sinister horse, like a horse with nefarious purposes, like a horse with a lucha mask. <laughs> more, more like like a horse. Like, did you ever? Were, were you a person who read the scary stories to tell in the dark books? No. Okay. Well, there's a story in one of those where um, there's a guy and there's a woman, and the woman can turn into a horse, and uh, the, cool. <laughs> the guy doesn't want this this chicanery to go on, and uh, in order to stop it, he like rides her home, and then like at night is when she turns into a horse. He rides her home, and then he puts horseshoes on her. And when he wakes up in the morning, there's just like a woman screaming in his barn with like horseshoes nailed to her hands. Um, yeah, gross. I think I messed up like half that story, but there's a really good picture of a horse in that. Um, that I always imagined to be the stalking horse. 
Is this like a... I don't... Is stalking horse a phrase that other people are familiar with? I have no idea what the fuck that means. I don't think you've ever interrupted me for a bit while I was doing the tale of <laughs> I still, hold on, I still have more to say about this bit. Uh, I'm also sending you a picture of this horse, by the way. Um, oh, man. Me and horses, you know. This is the horse I imagine to be the stalking horse. Huh. Looks like a horse with a plague mask. Yeah. Um, so, I, I've always just heard the... I didn't know the term stalking horse until um, I started listening to a lot of political podcasts because they end up using it a lot because it's used for like like politicians. Like Elizabeth Warren, for example, was a stalking horse. People are going to get mad at me for saying that, but let's be real. You know in your heart to be true. That's my Elizabeth Warren take. Hot takes. Derek, what's Stalker? Released in 1979. <laughs> directed by the great Andre Tarkovsky. <laughs> written by... Uh... Uh, written by the uh, the Stugatsky brothers, fra- adapted from their own uh, from their own uh, story, roadside picnic. Uh, one million uh, one million ruble budget, four point three million ticket. God, fucking just. Mm. I think this movie did well. Yeah, sure. Mixed reviews before, but uh, it did fine. Uh, reviewed kind of lukewarmly in uh, in nineteen seventy nine. Ended up becoming a. Uh, a, a, a genuine, bona fide, bulletproof classic and considered to be one of the great master Andrei Tarkovsky's best movies in a career full of them. In the awards section, it says it was awarded the prize of the ecumenical jury at Cannes and the jury award special mention at Fanisporto. Uh, but I think uh, this is, again, one of those movies with a long cultural tale. Let's talk about Coco briefly. So you are famously allergic to Pixar movies. I am. I'm, I'm not a fan. Uh, I like. I, I am not. I liked this movie, uh, but this is the movie that kind of laid bare for me that a Pixar movies are formula movies, and not just in the sense that they're three act movies with like a structure and characters and motivations and all that, but like down to like the funny dog and the hero that turns out to be an asshole. This is basically up, but they fucking should have called it down because. Yeah, yeah, down into a hole um, where this joke belongs. I think because it's a formula movie, but I think, I don't know, it's a formula at least that works 100% on me uh, in the sense they're very, these Pixar movies are very good at tugging at your heartstrings and making you feel things, or at least making me feel things. And uh, Coco was absolutely no exception. And there's this, it's also compounded by the fact that I'm kind of powerless against movies whose central theme is music has the power to move. Music is a transcendental good in the universe. And uh, this is partially what this movie is about. I agree. That is what the movie is about. <laughs> uh, Gal Garcia Bernal, get that check, I guess. Um, he's, he does uh, good work. I think, I, I think he's the best character by far. Like, I think he's the best character. I really, character. really like Hector. He's so interesting. Hector! I'm gonna roll those R's because I can. I can't. Uh, so I'm just gonna... But I don't. I already said this to um, Derek before the podcast. I don't want to say Hector and sound like that. You don't want... Do you not want people to Hector you? So, Hec, uh, so Hector is a... Uh, <laughs> by far the most interesting character in the film. He has the most like depth mm-hmm. and layers going on there. Oh, uh, but uh, quick plot synopsis. Um, sure, why not? Kid, who kid in a family who has ba- who has banned music for reasons, <laughs> uh, ends up in the land of the dead this. because of reasons, and has to get back, and has uh, enlists uh, not enlists the help, but is sort of 
the story doesn't fucking matter. This is about the colors and the visuals and the songs and uh, the the fucking uh, emotional climax at the end. It's uh, it's 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 a gorgeous movie that you've seen one hundred times before because this sim- this story is dirt simple. Uh, I mean, fucking the 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 fucking main song that won the Oscar isn't even the best song in the movie because that movie sounds like it was written by the people who wrote Let It Go. And there's something about these fucking theater kid songwriters that rubs me the wrong way, and I don't know fucking what. <laughs> the song sounds a hundred times better played on an acoustic guitar than it sounds in its big rendition, and it's not even the best song of the fucking movie. It's uh, but yeah, the animation is really good. The City of the Dead looks fucking magnificent. It's 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 good. It's 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 really good. It's uh, you know, watch it with the kitties. It's it's a good one. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's nothing to fucking say about this movie other than like it's a good looking Pixar movie. I liked this movie generally. That's my short version of it. Like I, I have no strong feelings one way or the other about it. I thought it was like as far as Pixar movies go, is middling. Or sorry, I should say as far as real movies go, it is middling. As far as Pixar movies go, that means it's pretty much top tier. So really good on that hand. And I like the music quite a bit. I'm also, a, I like show tunes. So like, I, I'm, yeah, okay, I'm cool I love that. Um, I'll s- it's not something you grew up with. I mean, it's like, I, I, I'm convinced in my heart of hearts that like show tune shit is an American thing. Probably. I mean, I'm American. So is Juan. That's two points of data. Yeah, that's a, and, that's a hundred percent. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, this is probably just the crowds I run in, but like, like show tunes, musical theater. It's like, it's like a, ver- it's like a niche thing. Right? Whereas I feel like in the US it's a lot more mainstream. But like in high school, did you not have like like musicals that everyone performing? We had drama. Uh-huh. Where we did like Ionesco and Moliere and shit. Yeah. We had band, but there and was never no the twain shall musical meet. Th- Never the Twain Shall Meet. And if it did, I would have stayed far away. Oh see, like um in my high school, uh there was four play no, three four plays that got done a year, um, because there was four quarters. And the last quarter was always a musical. Every single year. Okay. Now, I never did a musical play. All four years. Uh, no, uh, three of the years I played in the musical. Um, I didn't. I didn't, wasn't one of the singers. I was in the, the pit orchestra. Um, that's actually wh- why I learned to play banjo in the first place. Because we were doing Chicago. And they were like, hey, we need a banjo player. And I was like, we I can banjo play banjo. Player. Why not? Which uh, that's a real fun show to play. Just if anyone's thinking of playing like banjo in their high school production of Chicago, go for it. Um, and then also all the choir kids were super big musical theater people. And I hung out with a lot of choir kids. So at a certain point, it just becomes like a thing you're around all the time. Mm-hmm. So, hey, I, I like musical theater. Uh, not as much as other people, but I, I, I enjoy quite a bit of it. And what I'll say is that this movie, I liked the parts where people are talking. Yeah, pretty good script. Yeah, it's a pretty good script. I think that like the family dynamics are actually pretty interesting, even if I think their ultimate message kind of sucks. And the action sequences, I hated because I think they're always bad in Pixar movies. They're not actively bad. They're just they're kind of ho hum. They feel so obligatory. Like the, the the set pieces are like are, are like whatever. I mean, it it's it feels like oh yeah, we got to have like things to like make sure kids don't like f- turn off this movie. I guess we'll do like uh, we'll throw someone off a building. I guess. Well, the set dressing is so impressive, but I don't, yeah, I don't know how is much that though? hooks like a kid. Is it? I think so. I I found like especially in the City of the Dead. I found the City of the Dead like yeah. super nondescript. Like oh, I, I think it looks that. pretty, but I don't feel an identity for it. It didn't feel like oh here's like I get this place. 
where even in, in like like Monsters Inc., um, which I was also relatively positive on, I feel the the sense of place. I didn't really feel a sense of place here. Like I couldn't tell you what the defining attributes of the City of the Dead are. Uh, there's a couple of good jokes about it, uh, like when, as an excuse, um, what do you call it? The, the kid uh, Miguel says he has to go to the bathroom, and then as he like walks out, they're like, "Should we tell him there's no bathrooms?" Um, which is you know funny little joke, uh, but. <laughs> As like a whole, I couldn't tell you what the like guiding idea of the city was besides, I mean, I mean, even I was going to say besides like uh, Dia de Muertos, but like it's not, it doesn't even really feel consistently that to me, but I'm also like. No, only because you know. the characters are like skeletons. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the way that I would fine. describe it, I mean, they're not, eh, it's fine. They're kind of boring skeletons, but, like, cause in it, my opinion. They're skeletons that like wear clothes and shit, and they discombobulate each other all the time. I like the discombobulation. That was good. I like uh, the the censored dirty song that Gal Garcia Bernal sings to his buddy. Yes. That disappears. Turns out the dead can <laughs> die. Oh, no. When they're forgotten. Which, like... When they're... Oh, that's so heartbreaking. What the fuck? So, here's what, like, the emotional through line here. I have some mixed feelings about. Number one is I, I like the story... Um, between, uh, Miguel shit. and Hector. Um, yes, but also uh, Hector and Imelda. I believe that's, hold on. Uh, the really old lady who's still alive. Coco. <laughs> yeah. Coco. The titular Coco. Fuck off. Yeah. Coco. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. When she lights up at the fucking end of the movie. That's like, that's good shit, man. I, it's pretty good shit, even though it, to me it did feel still a little like, eh, this is like manipulative. But I mean, that's what Doesn't movies matter. are. It's a movie. It works. So it's fine. Um, but like, yeah, that last scene did get me like a little choked up. Um, and I was watching it with Julie and she definitely got pretty choked up with it. Yeah, I had to flip, I had to flip the counter back to zero. <laughs> but there's this bigger, maybe this is because like I perhaps have a strange approach to like how I've always viewed family, which is that like... Mm-hmm. I love my parents. Hi, Dad. Sure. I love you. I've told you that many, many times, so I think you're aware of it. But I don't love them because they're my parents. I love them because right. they've treated me well and I like them. <laughs> like, and like sure. I have an emotional connection with them. Like, if a person was to come to my door and say, like, hey, here's proof that I'm actually your sister you never knew about, I'd be like, okay, fuck off. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, what? that means <laughs> nothing to me. Like, okay, I've never met you before. You're just a stranger. The fact that you're a stranger who has, like, more similar genetic DNA to me, that means literally nothing at all. It's also one of the reasons that, like, I'm I'm not an uh, unadopted uh, person, but I know plenty of people who get adopted, like, want to meet their, like, biological parents later. I've never understood that for the mm-hmm. same reason. I'm like, they're, you didn't hang out with them. You didn't, like, get to know them. So, like... What's the point? But I mean, I'm not, I'm not judging those people. It's just more like me saying internally, that is how I approach that situation. So the idea that essentially a family is the most important possible thing. And that you, if your family asks you to give up on the only thing that makes you happy, you should do that. <laughs> and of course you don't have to, because at the end, like your great, great grandmother is like, Oh no, it's okay. You don't have to go up music anymore. But your grandmother did break your fucking guitar and was attempting to do that again before your father stopped her. 
like, sorry, grandma, fuck off. You seem real shitty. And I don't want to deal with you. I mean, the most the most tenuous thing in this movie about uh, the city of the dead is the family that hates music. Yes, yes. Like, I will say that I I almost wish there was more at the front ends to make me understand why Miguel cares about these people because they all seem to fucking hate him. Like, they all seem like terrible. Um, maybe I'm being overly harsh, but. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a stretch to me for like a kid to like place value in what his family thinks, even though what his family thinks is fucking stupid. Yeah, and I, I guess it's it's like it's you yeah, know it is it is it is what it is. Um, so that was one of the other reasons it didn't really quite work for me. And like I said, the action is terrible. But I think like as far as a if I'm gonna throw on a random Pixar movie, it's gonna be Finding Nemo. But if I don't get that option, uh, Coco is pretty top tier for that thing. Uh, the thing that the city of the dead reminds me of is like a giant multicolor melted wax candle. Okay. I could, I, I, conceptually, I like that. It looks, it looks like sort of a giant gravestone accoutrement with your candles and your flowers and your whatnot. That's definitely what they're going for. I just didn't quite, uh, feel it, but Hey. All right. So, so congratulations, but I believe stalker is going to go on. Let's talk about stalker. real quick. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, one of the greatest movies. Let's talk about one of the greatest movies ever made. (laughs) Let's talk. Let's talk about uh, Andre Tarkovsky's masterpiece of um, of, of metaphysics and uh, want and failure and uh, perception and faith and, uh, also, and, faith and um, hope and uh, togetherness and uh, danger. And it's 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 got everything. It's a movie that has nothing and yet has everything. What is this movie about? It's three dudes who go somewhere they're not supposed to. Three they're dudes like, who es- take it's a an walk. escort mission. Three dudes who take a walk. And this is a walking simulator. <laughs> this is what it is. And yet, inside this walking simulator contains sort of uh, it, it contains a kaleidoscopic soul. Like kaleidoscope is almost like one of my favorite ways to say that because. Any angle you're looking at this, you can get something from it. And that thing is probably going to be pretty profound. <laughs> it's so gorgeous. It The mise-en-scene is awesome. The sound design is fucking excellent. There's never been a movie that like has no special effects, but feels entirely alien and creepy. It's the softest of soft sci-fi gimmicks, but it works. 100%. Yeah. If you are not kind of... If you're not sort of... Take taken off balance by just the dunes inside where the yeah. like like inside the zone inside that building towards the end. I don't know what to tell you, man. It's like it's like you're watching the Stargate sequence. It's like eh, I get it. It's like <laughs> no, you don't understand. They didn't have anything to do this with. I still can't figure it out. It's wild. It's 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 gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's also like haunting and like genuinely frightening at points. Like when they're going through the meat grinder, nothing happens. But it's still like so unbearably tense the entire time. It's, I, you know, Tarkovsky has been criticized um, by people who are terrible for the fact that he's slow <laughs> and he lets things and? sit and he gives them space. But he does. A, this movie feels real brisk for being like two and a half, almost three hours, right? Yeah, nearly three hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, feels feels like it just moves. Like there's not a single point where I'm like. Okay, we can move to the next shot. I'm a little bored. I want to move to the next thing. Which even a lot of slow cinema directors I like, like I love Bela Tar, but there's definitely shots where I'm like, okay, Bela, I get it. Let's move forward. 
We we got it. He just like creates this pure mood and like sense of place that gets you gets you mentally in the in the right state of mind to just sit with these scenes like how you need to. Tarkovsky seems to me like a very intuitive filmmaker. He's got like these uh, these incredible instincts for like shot length, shot composition, and uh, like vibe, pace, um, all these kind of like not intangible things, but like letting everything kind of breathe when it needs to. But there's like there's like there's like a shootout in this movie. Yeah, you know, there's there. I mean, it's an action set piece in a movie that's two and a half hours long, but like. This movie takes as much care doing its little shootout than it does just running water or oil mixing with water for effect. At least I think it's oil and water. Or it's like tar and water. Yeah. It's something. Mm-hmm. And and, gor- it's um, fucking gorgeous. And also like disturbing and upsetting. It's 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 got like this this hum of intensity the whole way through. It's also got jokes. Like, like yeah. the, the, the bit with the, the phone. Dark ass Russian jokes, but yeah. The bit with the phone is oh, so but, fucking yeah. funny. For people, should we? Oh, okay, let's actually say the plot of this movie. For people who haven't seen it, uh, it's set in a country. It's never. Really, I think it might be specified in the movie, but it's like it's like a fictional country, or whatever it is. But it's vaguely, vaguely Russia, and something hit the Earth X amount of years ago. Um, people theorize it's a meteorite, but the more you go along in the film, the less likely that seems. And the assumption is maybe it was something extraterrestrial or supernatural. Um, but in a certain perimeter around that site, just weird shit happens. And it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous to be there. So there's these people called stalkers who their job and like what they've like trained uh, for like years to do is to be able to navigate the zone, as it's called, relatively safely. And the reason people would want to go to the zone isn't just like tourism. It's because there's supposed to be something there. Like if you reach this room where, like, where this thing supposedly dropped, then you'll have... Uh, your wish granted, like your innermost desire, essentially. So one of those stalkers who is on on one last job, um, like his wife already told him, like you- Well, he has everything. uh, Like you already said that you weren't going to do this anymore after you got fucking caught the last time, because it's also illegal to go in the zone. And he's like, yo, I just, I just got to go, like chill or whatever. And the zone beckoned. He escorts two men, um, one that is called the professor and the one's called the writer. Sounds about And right. they just walk to the room and they come back home. But in the middle, everything possible happens. Yeah, this for a movie with nothing, a lot of shit happens. Yeah. Um I mean, like we said, there's so many different ways to tackle this. So there's three different ways I've thought about approaching this, but I'm going to choose one of them and save the other ones for later because I bet we're going to be talking about this movie quite a bit. So the theme that I'm really interested in today is there's a lot of discussion of words in the film and how giving names to things essentially stops them from, from existing or like stops them from existing as a living thing and crystallizes them or like puts them in the zone. Like they are now bound by very certain parameters. There's now a circumference to that idea. And that comes up a couple different places. Number one is very early on, the uh, the stalker is saying like, uh, people don't come here because um, of their fear. And the writer says, what do they fear? And doesn't get an answer. And it's because the thing at the center of, you know, this, this, this zone is in some metaphysical way related to God. 
and there was no word. Like we had this word God, but like that's not it, that's not the name of God. Like you literally can't even like say the name of God in like um, Jewish teachings, like like Yahweh. Like it doesn't convey what approximation. It's... And um, later on, uh, the stalker talks about music and calls it sheer sound devoid of any associations and talks about how still it ends up reaching our hearts better than like words do better than books and paintings and things like that. For some reason, this sound, this unnameable thing, uh, one of the hardest things to, to describe actually, like if you read a lot of music criticism, so many of the words that we've come up with are textural and visual because like sound is such an abstract thing that like, it's really difficult to have terms for certain kinds of sounds. Yeah, we can only really describe how it makes us feel, right? Yeah. Uh, like, you can say it's like, oh, jangly. Like, okay. What is, like, angular. Uh, how is music angular? Like, that, a lot of those terms you hear so much aren't really describing the sound. They're describing an evocation that the sound creates. And so much of this film is about belief in God and why so many people seem not to need him anymore. And that's actually, like, the most heartbreaking line in the film later is that, to me at least, is the stalker after he gets home is crying in bed and, and he's talking about like how awful this trip was. And essentially the, like the last thing he says more or less is what's most awful is that no one needs it with it referring to hope, referring to faith. And the reason they don't is because these two characters, the professor and the writer, like the writer explicitly in the professor in not so many words, they are people of confined ideas. Like the writer literally writes words. The professor has this scientific framework, this um, uh, normative kind of, uh, I'm trying to come up with the, uh, the Heidegger term, but I can't remember it. Um, not Heidegger, sorry, Horkheimer. Not important right now. I can't help you. Um, but the bigger idea of it is that there are things beyond us that there aren't words for. And sure. that exists not through being able to explain it to someone, but through showing them and through them experiencing it and them feeling it move through them, which is, you know, one of the, I think, more important ways one might recognize God, I guess. Not to, like, do that for the second fucking week in a row, but um, turns out I think about God a lot. Imagine that. And, there are themes you keep returning to. Yeah. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a set of lines in the middle of the film that I think we both love, um, which he said, the stalker says... Let everything that's been planned come true. Let them believe and let them have a laugh at their passions because what they call passion actually is not some emotional energy, but just the friction between their souls and the outside world. And most important, let them believe in themselves. Let them be helpless like children because weakness is a great thing and strength is nothing. When a man is just born, he is weak and flexible. When he dies, he is hardened and sensitive. When a tree is growing, it's tender and pliant, but when it is dry and hard, it dies. Hardness and strength are death's companions. Pliancy and weakness are expressions of the freshness of being, because what is hardened will never win. Which, besides being like, holy yep. shit, like, wow. That's some good writing. It speaks to the same thing. Like, once you define a term, there's you're hardening it. You're putting, it can no longer be pliable. Um, like, you've defined it. We've put barriers around what this can mean. Whereas the actual experience of living in the world and the real vital experience, the living experience can't have those barriers and there has to be moments that you can't define and you can't even really speak to but you can just be there with someone for uh the stalker also mentions like how their eyes were prevented from recognizing him him being god and 
it's because of the way that they're trapped in their bodies like that. And they're trapped in these definable surroundings and they aren't able to move outside of that. And the stalker is in moments. And that's why he can move through the zone is because he can see things that the other ones couldn't see. I should let you talk for a little bit because I've just I've just kind of fucking steamrolled you. But the last thing I'm going to do, I mean, um, and I've steamrolled you twice this episode now, so I will. I mean, it's fine because the thing with being steamrolled by you, and I don't feel like I've been steamrolled, um, is that um, well, first of, first of all, um, I wouldn't even know how to like sort of express any of that in the first like the in the first one you gave context that i didn't know and the second one you're giving context that i didn't know or understand so it's fine okay don't even worry about okay. it okay well the last thing i'm going to do before i let you, uh, like we kind of you know let let you go and kind of finish this up is i want to read a short section uh from as i lay dying by william faulkner specifically in maybe my favorite chapter in the english language which is Addie's chapter um she's dead when she's speaking and for people who haven't read the book, Ants, when I say Ants, that's her husband, and the other names are her children. He did not know that he was dead then. Sometimes I would lie by him in the dark, hearing the land that was now of my blood and flesh, and I would think, Ants. Why Ants? Why are you Ants? I would think about his name until after a while I could see the word as a shape, a vessel, and I would watch him liquefy and flow into it like cold molasses flowing out of the darkness into the vessel, until the jar stood full and motionless a significant shape profoundly without life, like an empty door frame. And then I would find that I had forgotten the name of the jar. I would think, the shape of my body where I used to be a virgin is in the shape of a... And I couldn't think ants. Couldn't remember ants. It was not that I could think of myself as no longer unvirgin, because I was three now. And when I would think Cash and Darl that way, until their names would die and solidify into a shape and then fade away, I would say, all right, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they call them. And... Uh, by the way, that, that break in the middle was there's a space in the text, like it's literally like a blank space, because there's no word for it. <laughs> like she she's talking about how when she would think about this name over and over, it would die. And the thing that like the form it took would die. Whereas the actual being like her blood married to the land and to herself and her children, there is no words for it's beyond that it doesn't matter what you call them. And now I've said my piece. Um, about at least this time for Stalker. And Derek, I want to hear you talk more about this incredible film. Well, okay. So, um, re-watching a bunch of Tarkovsky films, well, two so far, it's going to be more later, has kind of thrown into relief the uh, huge parallels that there are with uh, the work of Ingmar Bergman. Mm -hmm. He even used um, uh, Sven Nykvist on his last film. That's right. Uh, the and I think uh, that's fuck. Is that the sacrifices? How does that one? Uh, either that or nostalgia. I forget which. Anyway, uh, I think I think uh, the sacrifice is uh, Tarkovsky's Bergman film. But I think there's a lot of stuff in common here. The kind of sort of the the the, the agony of faith, as it were. But except the movies are like three times as long and operate uh, weirdly uh, frequently in the realm of sort of a genre, like uh, historical fiction, science fiction, whatever it may be. You know how they say that talking about something you really, really like is more difficult than talking about something that you dislike? Yes. <laughs> which, I, which sort of like, like, which kind of ties into your point a little bit because I know I, th I know this movie's a masterpiece. I can feel it in my gut and my eyes whenever I watch it. And I, and I can feel it whenever I process it. I, but uh, articulating it is a, an entirely different deal. It, it, it'd just be me gushing about 
like I said, the the cinematography and uh, the sound design and uh, the mise en scene and um, the uh, the sort of uh, the, the 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 broad thematic ground that it covers uh, this, uh, using sort of the uh, the humble science fiction story uh, and uh, with very very few moving parts. So it's as much uh, an appreciation of it as a movie as it is as a piece of craft. Because let it not let's not get let's not get it twisted. Andrei Tarkovsky is a fantastic fucking director. Oh, incredible. We've talked we've talked about this sort of uh, sort of uh, at the top, and I think it's just as well that you went long because it, it'll give me another six months to think about something smart to say whenever this movie uh, goes up against Ronda Basanti in round two. That's gonna be a fucking long episode. Um, but yep, uh, just. Um, these are actual quick things. Number one is that I just read this on the Wikipedia page. Apparently, uh, Tarkovsky directed a radio production of the short story Turnabout by one William Faulkner. So that's a fun parallel that I had no idea before this moment. Um, cool. so, hey, who knows? Maybe he had that passage that I just read in mind. Maybe. And number two is I think like what you're speaking to is a lot of this movie is you have to experience it. You have to be there. You have to be in it. The word for a lot of Tarkovsky movies, and this one especially, since it focuses on water so much, is elemental. Yes. And it it's a lot like, um, uh, this is, I promise, I, I'm, I'm going to say a very fancy thing, but I promise it's actually very short. So, sure. um, Schopenhauer, uh, his book Aesthetics, essentially defined, like, what are you looking for in, like, a good piece of art? Um, and his idea was a good piece of art lets you, for a moment, commune with uh, what he called the will which is essentially like the thing that underlies all creation. And for that moment that you were together with it, suffering is relieved and you no longer experience the, the horrible pain of being human and being, being a self. Essentially your body stops having friction with the world or your soul stops having friction with the world, I think is the phrase that is used in the movie. But yeah, I think it's pretty clear that it moves on past Coco. But Coco, if you have children, uh, I think it's a pretty good movie to watch. Yeah, even, if, like, even if you don't have kids and you just want something. Yeah, sure. You know, if you don't mind being devastated at the end or whatever, but whatever. Um, so, yeah, round two, we're going to have Ronda Basanti versus Stalker. <laughs> oh, that's like that's like six hours of material right there, boy. Two great And that's two just re-watching both those movies. They taste great together. Uh, I, I, I guess that remains to be seen. Um, uh do we read? Do we read the letter? Do we just? Do we just kick that can again? We got to kick that can down the road. It's been like two hours. I have not eaten dinner yet. I. Yeah, neither have I. Uh, it just ticked over to two hours now. Okay. Uh, if you like any of this, dear listener, do rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. Um, if you want to get in touch with us to tell us to shorten the fucking episodes, uh, middlebrowmadness at gmail.com is our email address. Middlebrowpod is where we live at on Twitter. Um, we have a Discord. We're actually also both. We have a Discord now. The link is going to be in the show we notes. We talk about heating up uh, real dolls and how you're supposed to do it. Yeah. I mean, some people do. Not everybody. <laughs> Only the the truly truly erudite talk about that. That's right. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Uh, your humble hosts are also on Twitter. I'm at uh, Derek underscore G. Isabel is at Space Jam Fan. We're at, we're on Letterbox at both those same handles. Do email us uh, vegan and vegetarian recipes, opinions about the picks, Bollywood recommendations, and you know whatever it is that interests you. Really, I mean, uh, we're here, we're here to read it all, assuming we can keep it under two hours next time. <laughs> Uh, speaking of next time, the matchups for uh, that particular episode are going to be, uh, oh, it's going to be a doozy. Aeson Z versus the third man and the Godfather versus close up. And with those two, we will have finished 
50% of round one, 25% of the show. It's going to be a doozy. <sighs> Fuck. Um, uh, <laughs> so. I think there's enough. Oh, there's I, I do want to say to I have a podcast. Outro. I have another podcast. Um, oh, right. If you want to hear course, me only talk shit. for 30 minutes instead of two hours, check out um, For a Good Time. Uh, it is a podcast I do with um, your friend and mine, uh, Juan Marquin, uh, about mm-hmm. pornography. It is also part of the Noise Space at XYZ network. Um, but it's not like just, is, yeah? it, it uses pornography basically as a, as a, a launch pad to talk about a like cinematic craft and how movies express themselves and B like cultural depictions of sexuality, like our own experiences of sexuality and like how pornography almost through being uniquely unself-aware as far as art forms go, tells us a lot about those things. But yeah, um, now I think we're all good. All right. So all that's left to do is for you to say your name. Oh shit. Yeah. Um, I've been Isabel Arf. And I've been Derek Godding. Have movies, be jolly. Have movies, be jolly. Good night. We'll try to make the next one under like an hour 45. No promises. The operative word there is try. (laughs) You still have to say good night. Oh, good night. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>